thing that really helped me with that is kind of changing how I think about progression in general. So instead, like we're always taught this, I've heard it a thousand times, the Milo with the bull analogy of like Milo carries the bull up the mountain and the bull gets bigger and he picks it up and he gets stronger. That's actually a very backwards way of thinking about adaptation. You don't progressively overload to get stronger. It's not how it works. That doesn't even make sense if you think about it logically. Like I'm going to lift more than I could lift so I could get stronger. No, that's nonsensical. If you can progressive overload, it means you have already gotten stronger. So progressive overload is not the driver of adaptation. It's the signal that adaptation has already occurred. So just changing how you think about that relationship in general, it actually opens up a lot more options of how you handle training. And this is where we could get into more of like a athlete-centric way of thinking about things. Welcome back to the Mops and Mo's podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Drew. On today's episode, we're having a really cool conversation with someone whose content I have been trying to understand for probably two years now. Uh, still not quite there, but hopefully we get a little bit closer today. Evan Pycon is who we're chatting with. He is a physiologist, data scientist, researcher, probably all around human performance genius. It's safe to say. Uh, he was previously a performance coach at Training Think Tank, where he worked with top CrossFit Games competitors, as well as an applied physiologist at Emergent Performance Lab, where he consulted with professional sports teams and U.S. military special operations. Currently, in addition to posting excellent content on Instagram and on his Substack, Evan is the chief physiologist and bioscientist for Knox Incorporated, where he works on biosensor development. So suffice to say, super freaking smart. And we're going to have a great conversation with him about what you guys need to know at a really operational level about the crazy smart stuff he knows all about. And really, we, we deep dive into the idea of, of paradigm shifts and why we think, for better or for worse, what we're seeing in the tactical space with regards to human performance represents somewhat of a paradigm shift away from what we might think of as traditional strength and conditioning. So buckle up, get out your notebook and enjoy. Most people will have no clue what, I don't want to say they'd have no clue what they're doing because they, they know what they're doing. It's just, and Evan, we've talked about this now for years. It's just taking stuff from different previous experiences and trying to slap it on to tactical athletes so yeah i mean i feel like that parallels crossfit really well where whatever discipline someone came from prior to coaching crossfit they just kind of like slap that model onto crossfit athletes like they try and just train a track and field model with crossfit movements or they basically take football players training and just use like thrusters and burpees instead of things that are practical for football well that's a good diving off point because you've now been i mean crossfit's been going on now for a long time have you seen, or did you see, or are you seeing a paradigm shift in that space? Or are we even past that where, you know, years ago, if I think back to stuff that I was just pulling off the internet and doing for fun and stuff in like the early games days, have we seen 
kind of a paradigm shift in the way that we train for that sport? Yeah, I mean, I've seen like multiple different paradigm shifts within CrossFit. The first regional athlete I coached was maybe eight years ago. Um, a few years after that, coached my first games athlete. So maybe four-ish years ago. And even since then, we've seen things change. So way back like eight years ago, even 10 years ago, I was coaching some CrossFit athletes on more of a recreational level. The way that people train for CrossFit is they would take a established strength training program, an established endurance training program, and some skill movements that they found on YouTube from like a eight-year-old Russian gymnast, and they would just slap those things together and they would call it good. And then they would essentially try and periodize that by like waving their volume and intensity. And it worked relatively well. I mean, you look at the first few CrossFit games and people were putting up impressive numbers. That said, if you look at those numbers now, they're not that <laughs> impressive in the grand scheme now that we've seen the trajectory of the sport. But I mean, that was the first time that you saw guys that weighed 190 pounds running a 530 mile and deadlifting 400 pounds, which was like mind blowing back then at the games. And then as time evolved, people figured out more intelligent ways of mixing those things. I realized that you can't just take strength training programs and endurance programs and isolation and slap them together. So they started to combine those in more intelligent ways. But then what you've seen over time is people have experimented as um, different ideas have come into the sport. It's really evolved where things are so nuanced now. I'll, I'll say in some crowds of the sport, things are very nuanced. People understand their energetic limitations. They understand their sport specific limitations and they understand how these things uh, combined to create like a very seamless program where you go from one type of training variable to the next. So the way that some of the top games competitors train now, it is, it's like an established sport at this point. It's not just taking ideas from random places on the internet and just applying it to these athletes. I think that's super valuable. Cause that's, I mean, CrossFit is essentially concurrent training turned into a sport. Yeah. And concurrent training is like at the root of what we need for training tactical athletes. Cause there's a lot of the same unknown and unknowable phenomenon of, you don't know what the competition will look like. There's also the life or death component, which changes it a little bit, <laughs> but, a little bit, but just like trying to prepare for anything means that you are inherently going to be doing kind of what you said, like taking from different places and trying to slap it together. And, and some people have enough of a foundation to know how to do that logically. And some people are just trying to do the most and you're going to like charge through it head first and see how it goes. Yeah. I mean, there's even just like getting into CrossFit a little bit, there's even just such weird demands when you think of the challenges of having a 200 pound endurance athlete, there's really weird considerations like that. I'm sure you see that on the tactical side as well. I mean, I've worked with some FF SF guys that are relatively large for doing what they're doing in their selections um that said they're not always having to express strength and endurance at the exact same time so it's a, it's a little bit different but i mean the sports are similar to an extent if you want to call sf or tactical training a sport i know you guys had a whole long debate about that on the last episode it's ongoing it's definitely ongoing. I think there's also the the similarity. You kind of said that people came from different sports into CrossFit and used whatever background they had. And people tend to come from different sports into tactical and use whatever they had, right? So you get, if unit is commanded by a guy who ran cross country, 
then they probably got a pretty good handle on how to train for running, but they might not have as great a handle on how to train for anything else. And they might not want to like get embarrassed in front of the guys where they find out they're not that strong or they, a guy who was a collegiate football player or something like that will come with that background. And it's, it's the same kind of thing of like the culture constantly changing and trying to adjust to whatever background the, the leadership has. Yeah. And something I find that's almost so dangerous about that is I come from an endurance training sport background. So when you're, doing endurance sports at a high level, not that I was at a very high level, everyone tends to have relatively homogenous physiologies. Most people tend to be limited by their respiratory system, for example. So they're all going to adapt to training in very similar ways. If you look at a high level strength training background, or if you go to an NFL combine, everyone's physiologies are pretty similar to one another. So there's very established training paradigms within each of those siloed sports. But the issue is, is when you take a guy that is built to be an NFL player and you try and get him into distance running, his physiology is very different than those distance runners. So the things that are going to work for him to improve his endurance, they're fundamentally different types of protocols. They may not even look like endurance training protocols on paper. And I found that when you have someone that comes from like such an established background in a single discipline, it almost makes them more dangerous when they're trying to train people uh, to get good in that thing because their experience doesn't generalize at all. And it almost pushes them into this scenario where they're like, well, it's the athlete. There's something wrong with them that they're not getting good at running or they're not getting strong because I know my protocols work. And I'd imagine you, you probably see some similar things to that from a tactical background as well, when you have all these guys from different disciplines coming into one unit and the coach has a very uh, specific niche background. We have exactly that. I had, I had a question or I had a conversation with a, an infantry company commander a couple of days ago and he was talking about like, they need to train his platoons. So we're looking at 30 people and that guy is 220 pounds and that guy is 120 pounds and that guy grew up playing sports and that guy's never played sports in his life, but they need to do the same workout. What should we do? Like, <laughs> That's a, that's a tough scenario. Right. And we we're trying to like introduce elements of individualization. I don't think we're going to ever get to like true individualization in army physical training, but I, I talked to a guy a couple weeks ago about this individualization for us is kind of aspirational. We need to teach people how to take a template and kind of individualize it for themselves or for like the smallest unit. We can get that knowledge down to. So this is, this is a leading, a leading question because it's something that I think the three of us have talked about independently of where this is probably going to go. But Evan, one thing we've hit on frequently is this idea. We'll use the training paradigm buzzword again, but we've seen this time and time where in strength and conditioning or in human performance, you can get away with what we would call like a suboptimal. And you just touched on it, like a suboptimal approach, right? So if like, I'm a track coach and I have a platoon or a team or whatever doing, doing my approach, chances are most, most folks will get away with that. And we won't ever really know if, if what they did was the right thing, because we moved the needle a little bit. And one of the things that we've gone back and forth with is really in no other field does that exist. Specifically, we looked at like biomedical where there's really only, I don't want to say there's only one way to do thing, do things, but if you do in fact come at the problem with a suboptimal paradigm, that tends to weasel itself out. 
and that doesn't necessarily evolve with with the field. So specific this is a long question, but specific to human performance, why do you think that we are plagued by outdated physiology, outdated biology, outdated, you know, this, that, and the other? Why does why does that stick around? Yeah. So I think one of the number one reasons is that this is one of the rare fields that if some on an athlete side, if someone has great genetics, they're probably enough standard deviations away from the norm that they could do anything. They could probably do the worm and they'll be bench pressing more than the average person out sprinting them. And the other person could be training with the most intelligent program and they're still never going to be fitter than that guy. I mean, I have friends that I grew up with, uh, national level sprinters that just did the most ridiculous stuff. I have a friend that in high school ran a sub four minute mile. I was running the same program. We were doing just absolutely absurd training protocols. But if someone's so many standard deviations away from the norm, it really doesn't matter to a degree. They're going to adapt to anything. And I can't think of many other fields where that's the case. If you have two surgeons, one of them goes to a Harvard medical school. The other one is just some guy that picks up a scalpel and walks into the ER. It's very unlikely that that guy that just walks into the ER off the street is going to be a better surgeon than the person that went to Harvard medical school. There's very much a barrier of entry of knowledge and skill to get to that level and actually be effective but you don't have that barrier to entry in these physical domains because genetics is such a big driver. And as a result of that, even on a coaching end, if you coach a few people and it just so happens that those people that you coach are genetic all-stars, it's probably going to make you think that your protocols are very good, even if they are definitely not. And I've actually seen this in pro sports. A lot of times the guys working with pro athletes actually have way less solid training paradigms and logic behind what they're doing than coaches that I've worked with that coach kind of average Joes in group classes, because those people really need to understand what they're doing because the people that they're training aren't going to adapt to anything. The second end of this kind of to your point with the biomedical side, our paradigms in SNC could be completely wrong, but because there's such a low barrier to entry and because there's so little risk involved in what we're doing, it doesn't really matter. A lot of times people talk about like aerobic, anaerobic, and I know we've had this talk a lot. And it's like, there's, there's no such thing as an anaerobic system. I've talked to a lot of phys- physicians about this. One of my coworkers, actually, he's a um, MD, PhD, a cardiologist, and also a free radical biologist. And we were talking about this idea of aerobic, anaerobic, and he's like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, no one thinks there's uh, like a just fully anaerobic system and that like we're not aerobic at all times. And I'm like, no, this is a normal paradigm in strength and conditioning. He's like, that doesn't make any sense. Like that were the case. Most of the things that you give people in training would kill them. I'm like, yeah, exactly. If people in the medical field had the wrong paradigm, they would be killing people left and right. Where if we have the wrong paradigms and strength and conditioning, we still may be getting people fitter. How are you ever going to figure out what the right paradigm is if your way of thinking could be completely wrong and you could simultaneously be highly effective? So it's just an environment that doesn't reward truth. Critical thinking. I mean, that to a degree, of course, there are a lot of critical thinkers, but it doesn't always reward it. 
And just because you have the right paradigm also doesn't mean that your training protocols are going to be any better than some guy that just kind of rolls the dice and happens to be working with really great athletes and they beat everyone that you're working with in competition anyway. So I'll, I'll ask you a question. And I talked to Drew about this kind of frequently. I, I think a lot about trying to decide which frameworks are useful, not right or wrong, but useful. Mm-hmm. And you could have a framework that's right, like evidence-based that doesn't help anyone get better. And you could have a framework that's made up and not accurate, and it could help people get better because it guides them in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So the, the energy systems framework, right? And I, people have various different versions of it, but it usually involves the term anaerobic and it usually involves talking about like phosphagen and glycolytic and whatever, whatever version of it you use. Lactic acid. Yeah. Would you consider, well, hopefully not, but would you consider that a useful framework? And if not, what would you encourage people to use? So I'll say it's useful in that any framework is better than no framework. I'd rather people have a framework that is useful to some degree and it's wrong than just not having any framework whatsoever. That said, it is fundamentally wrong. And I think it actually leads people to make the wrong conclusions and do things that do not make sense because they're essentially moving in the wrong direction. So let me give you an example. If you believe that doing an 100 meter sprint is an anaerobic event, you will never come to the conclusion that you are limited by oxygen supply to the working muscles or that you are limited by your respiratory system's ability to take oxygen in and clear CO2 or your muscles' ability to utilize oxygen at a fast rate. None of those are natural conclusions when you deem an event anaerobic. So there are circumstances where having the wrong paradigm, having a improper sense or understanding of physiology just lead you to make conclusions that just don't make a lot of sense. And that's where when you see people that want to get better at speed and power sports, a lot of times they're just doing things that make little to no sense relative to their physiology, but they just don't have other options because they would never come to the right conclusions within that kind of murky way of thinking about things. Well, you you set up the next one really well, which is you talked about like three sets of biological or physiological limiters, right? Um, And and this is a framework you've talked about on your page a lot. So I wanted you to to have a chance to like lay it out for people here, but the, the respiratory limited athlete, the delivery limited athlete and the utilization limited athlete, what is that paradigm and how would you apply it? Yes. So this isn't, I wouldn't say this is like a broad sweeping way of understanding bioenergetics. The way that I explain it is these are really the different limiting factors for getting your VO2 max higher. So the VO2 max best definition is one from David Poole, which is the maximum integrated capacity of the pulmonary system, cardiovascular system, and muscular system to uptake oxygen transport that oxygen to working muscles and utilize oxygen in the working muscles respectively. So the way that we could think about this, I know Drew's heard this analogy before. So chocolate factory. Yep. Chocolate factory. (laughs) We've got any chocolatiers here. We're about to get into it. So we've got a chocolate factory and we're very smart, savvy businessmen. We want to make some cash. So we have three different steps in our chocolate factory. Keep in mind, I have no idea how this really works. So if people are listening to this and they're like, that's not how chocolate I, factory I love works. this because it's literally just systems engineering, like queuing theory stuff. It, that's exactly what it is. It's systems engineering. So if you're, that, that's your background, you're going to know where I'm going with this. <laughs> so first step in this factory, we pour the chocolates in the mold. Second step, we wrap the chocolate bars. 
third step in the factory production line. We stamp our logo on them, mops and mows, and then we get these out the door. So we want to make more money. So what we do is we say, okay, we're going to put 10 extra people on this factory floor and we're going to put all of them on that last step, stamping the chocolate bars. We're going to come back in a week. We come back and we see we have not sent off a single chocolate bar more than we did the previous week. We're like, what is going on? We've put 10 more people on the floor. We haven't made any more chocolate. Something's wrong. So we get on the floor and we see there's a bunch of chocolates piled up at the second step. So we realize, oh, wrapping those chocolate bars, that's our rate limiting step. So we've been putting all these extra people stamping the chocolate bars, but all the chocolate bars are piling up at that second step. So instead, what we do is we take all of those extra people, we put them on the second step. That's the rate limiting factor. Now we start getting more chocolate bars out the door. It's kind of stupid analogy, but that's really how our bodies work as well. We have these different systems that coordinate to uptake, transport, and utilize oxygen. One of them is going to be lagging relative to the other ones. So if my rate limiting factor is my ability to consume oxygen in the working muscles, and I'm doing a lot of endurance training that's improving my pulmonary system and my cardiovascular system's ability to uptake and transport oxygen, I'm not doing the things that are effective to actually improve my performance. So I'm not going to get better. Effectively, everything I'm doing is junk volume. And this is where you see people in the endurance world. They're like these vicious arguments between people that love hit training and people that love long, slow endurance training. Some people are like LSD training is junk volume. It doesn't do anything. Other people say hit training doesn't do anything for endurance athletes. The reality is, is that if you're limited by your rate of oxygen utilization, Long, slow endurance training is junk volume, but if you're limited by your cardiovascular system's ability to supply oxygen, HIIT training is junk volume for you. So it's also contextual. And if we understand what someone's limitation is, now you could be more strategic with training. One, you could probably get people better with less volume, or you could spend the time doing something else. Uh, two, you don't need to or I think it makes training simpler because you don't need these very fancy and complicated periodization schemes. You just address whatever the limiter is in training. And then when the limiter changes, you just do something else. You don't need to project out any further than that. Well, that sets up an obvious next question, which is how do you determine what your limiter is or the limiter for an athlete you're working with? Yeah. So this is where uh, we could take the simple yet useful approach, or we could get a little bit more complex. So we'll start complex and we'll kind of circle back around and make this more practical for people. Um, this is also going to be a plug because <laughs> I work for a biotech company and we build technology that could do this. Um, but one of the ways that you could do this is you could actually interrogate the physiology. You could take measurements of people's cardiopulmonary, cardiovascular, and muscular systems ability to do these different things. So if I put a biosensor on someone's working muscle and I tell them to go sprint as hard as they can, and they finish the sprint and I see there's a ton of oxygen in that muscle, say, okay, you clearly cannot utilize oxygen in your working muscle effectively. We probably need to improve that. And what you tend to see is that the, when they improve their ability to utilize oxygen in the tissue, it's perfectly correlated with performance improvements. On the flip side, if we have someone do that exact same test and they finish with 0% oxygen in the muscle, well, I know doing HIIT training is probably not going to be that effective for them. So I probably need to improve uh, capillarization in the tissue or peripheral blood flow, whatever it is. So that's more of the technical way to do this. The simple way is kind of like a heuristic. If you ever worked with someone where 
you have them do a one rep max back squat and a three rep max and a five rep max. And they basically lift the same weight for all three of those. And then you have them do a one mile run and a 5k run. And they basically hold the same pace for both of those kind of that grinder. That's one gear. That person is more than likely limited by their ability to utilize oxygen, the tissue where you have another athlete that is the complete opposite. You would look at their 800 meter mile time and you're like, man, this person will smoke a 5k. And then you have them run a 5k and you're like, you just got 187th and a couch to 5k run, but you have an insane 800 meter a mile time. Oh, this person can't preserve their speed if their life depended on it. That person's probably limited by their cardiovascular system. And then when you have the person who's just like a complete stud, great all around, in most cases, they're limited by their respiratory system because this person has great blood flow to the tissues. They can utilize oxygen well, but their strengths almost become their weaknesses. Their cardiac outputs are so high that their red blood cells move through the pulmonary capillaries in their lungs so quick that they can't pick up oxygen. So now these people are actually limited by their uh, gas exchange. So these are some kind of like easy heuristics to think about these things with. What's interesting about this, because like, I mean, I've, I've gone headfirst into Evan's stuff for years and years, and I, I've tried to figure out what, I mean, we talk about limiting factors, like what is the limiting factor for strength coaches understanding this stuff? Because like when you put a NEARS or, or a Moxie graph in front of somebody and you show them that oxygen is utilized as soon as you start moving, they usually are like, oh yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. And then they'll turn around and they'll keep talking about anaerobic this, anaerobic that. So they clearly haven't made the connection. And I think what's interesting is that from a coaching standpoint, we already do this exact same thing with resistance training, whether we realize it or not. So like if we correlate VO2 max and just substitute in one rep max back squat, when an athlete does a squat, I can look at him and identify what what is limiting him from adding weight to that bar? Is it his strength in the bottom position? Is it his, you know, is it his mobility? Is it this, that, or the other? And then based off what I, what I take from that assessment, I build the strength training to supplement those weak points. And, and maybe it's because a lot of this limiter conversation happens through the lens of endurance. And most coaches just don't fundamentally understand endurance that it becomes this kind of like hard concept to grasp, but again, for me personally, when I started putting a lot of this language into a resistance training framework, it all of a sudden clicks because again, like if, if I have 10 athletes and I want them for some reason to all increase their, their deadlift, I'm not going to give them all the same thing because for one guy, it might be, you know, resistance off the floor is the issue for the other guy. It might be his lockout. And so that program is going to look a little bit different. And really, I think what Evan is getting at is that from a physiological standpoint, that exact same framework exists. You just got to think about it a little bit more than just saying we're either sprinting or we're running a long distance. Yeah, that's exactly how I, when I work with uh, team sports, I teach it in exactly that way. I use resistance training as the framework. So the example that I'll give in a lot of cases is we have two guys that want to improve their back squat. And let's say that leg pressing is the perfect measurement of leg drive strength. I know this isn't the case, but it makes it really simple to think about it. So we have these two guys, both of them back squat 500 pounds, and one of them can leg press 700 pounds, and the other one leg presses 400 pounds. Why are these guys back squatting the same amount? The guy that's leg pressing 700 pounds, his legs are clearly stronger. 
Well, maybe his lower back is weak. So his lower back is the rate limiting factor. If he strengthens his lower back, lo and behold, his squat goes to the roof and now he's a lot stronger than the other guy. The other guy maybe has a ridiculously strong lower back. So he's actually able to squat quite a bit, even though his legs aren't as strong. So he needs to improve his leg drive strength and his leg press. And lo and behold, his squat goes up. Both of these guys are squatting the same amount, but they have a different rate limiting factor. And coaches are like, oh yeah, of course. Like I totally know that when some guys, when they squat, they dump forward and they use their lower back to stand up. Other guys get pinned in the hole and I know how to fix that. Like that's exactly it. We're doing the identical thing with energy system training. I think the reason why the rubber doesn't always hit the road in that way is that kind of going back to this conversation of bioenergetics, people tend to have the wrong model. And two, coaches tend not to understand integrative physiology as well. I know a lot of us get into the SNC world because a lot of us are meatheads. We like lifting weights and uh, doing all that fun stuff. And a lot of us come from team sport backgrounds where things have more of like a classic SNC lens and it's a little bit more resistance training centric. So guys intuitively know how to make people stronger where it's less common that people come from. I mean, it's more common now in academia that people have endurance sport backgrounds, but you seldom see those people coaching team sports or it's a little bit less common for them to get into tactical SNC in my experience. Um, so I think that's also where some of this disconnect is. Well, it goes to, I think this touches on what Alex mentioned about the frameworks and being useful versus correct. I think you can get away with an, an incorrect framework so long as the product at the end is succeeding. I think where it goes wrong is when you start to run into negative results or regressions or whatever. And if you don't have the correct framework, you're not going to know how to solve that problem. You're just going to, like Evan said, you're just going to start to blame the athlete or brain, you know, blame this, that, or the other in the tactical space. It's like, Oh, the ops tempo is too high. They had a deployment, et cetera, et cetera. When realistically, if you're coming at it with an appropriate framework as, as overly complicated as, as it might seem at the outset, but if you have the appropriate framework, then when you do need to start troubleshooting, you have the right tools at your disposal. So, you know, if, if it is the squat and you do have to address a sticking point, or if it is energy systems and you do have to fix you know, utilization versus delivery. Like you, you have the right tools. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like if things are working, that's great. Like, I'm not going to change anything that you're doing. I'm, I don't even want to talk to you. I don't want to screw anything <laughs> up. Just buy my ebook. Yeah. The reality is, is most of the CrossFit games competitors that I've worked with as a consultant, most of the pro sport teams I've worked with all these different cases, it's because things stopped working. And they've just tried to throw different protocols at it. They've tried to do more volume, more intensity, X, Y, or Z, and nothing has worked. So those are the cases where I'll come in and we'll say, okay, let's actually take a peek under the hood. We'll take a step back and identify what these rate limiting factors are and take this really nuanced view. And in those cases, we get good results and we can get progress going again. So it's exactly what you said. Like This is only relevant when you need to troubleshoot and when what you're doing isn't working and you've tried everything under the sun conceivably. And I think that's the importance of having this background because eventually something you do isn't going to work. Well, I think 
first of all, I want to take this opportunity to apologize to the, the several hundred non-commissioned officers in the army that I taught phosphagen, anaerobic glycolysis, aerobic glycolysis, beta oxidation. So <laughs> that's, that's on me. Sorry guys. Um, but I think where like the army's problem right now and like the military's problem in general, and it's the same in police and fire and things like that is it's injuries, right? Like society's becoming less active. People are less rugged. We're putting them through training programs and more of them are breaking than used to. And part of that is because they were more sedentary growing up and have lower bone density and all sorts of things like that. But part of it is because, and you talked about this with genetics earlier, our, our approach has just been a meat grinder approach where people with like, who are just genetically more rugged and respond to whatever you throw at them well, have longer careers and rise to the top. And they say it worked for them. So it must work for everyone else. Just do more of this. And I think just having this conversation about how people's physiology can lead them to respond in different ways to the same training or be responders or non-responders to different types of training. We, we kind of need to get that message out there that you can't put everyone through the same meat grinder and expect exactly the results you got because what's limiting them is not the same as what was limiting you. And you can't even expect that the protocol that worked phenomenally for you eight months ago is even going to get you a pound of improvement in six months from now either. I've made that mistake so many times where I'm like, man, this protocol worked phenomenally for me in the past. I'm going to do it again. Cause last time it put 20 pounds on my squat and I do it and my squat goes down 10 pounds. Like what the hell is going on here? It's when you find that you need to take these more nuanced approaches. Also to your point about the whole phosphagen aerobic anaerobic thing, to your credit, I've taken classes, physiology classes at a top medical school, and they also teach that. So, I mean, I heard the, I forget who I was listening to not two or three days ago talking about lactic acid. And this was a highly educated individual talking about something, something, something prevented lactic acid buildup. And the problem is when you know these things, even at a base level, like that's not lactic acid is not a thing you hear that and you just discount everything else that comes out of that person's mouth, which is probably not the right way to do it. But as soon as I like Lance Armstrong on Joe Rogan talking about some lotion that can like prevent lactic acid buildup, it's like, get out of here. Yeah. But at least, so what Alex just brought up leads to kind of an open-ended question. I think really for all of us, this idea of like, cause you'll talk about these models and we'll talk about you know, physiology and, and that sort of thing. And everybody that listens to it is always in agreement in like a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Like they understand the nuance of training individuals. They understand to a certain extent, a lot of the stuff that has to do with this paradigm, but time and again, we still end up in the same place, which is that people are approaching training from a very like Soviet-esque, mechanistic-esque biomedical-esque model. So I, I suppose the, the open-ended question here is like, do we see a world where we move away from that? And I, I suppose directed at you, Evan, having been invested in this for so long, have you seen a shift at all in the industry towards what you would consider to be correct? Or do you still just see people like nodding in agreement on one side and then turning around and just doing what they know is wrong? because it, you know, puts money in their pocket, I suppose. 
I mean, you definitely do see it. I mean, I, I've worked with certain uh, fight camps that very much talk in these terms that we talk in and they apply these concepts. I've talked with uh, researchers at Red Bull and Nike and these different organizations that they, they know these things already and this is integrated into their training philosophies. But in a lot of cases, it is more difficult. People nod their head when they talk to you one-on-one and they're totally in agreement. And then they just go back to doing what they've always done. It's very much a case of path dependence to use one of Sean Piley's special words that I also like saying because it makes me feel smart. Um, But I mean, it's one of those things that if you've always done something some way at the end of the day, like a lot of us in SNC, yes, we do love it. We're fascinated by it but we are also doing it as a job to make money in one. It's difficult to go back on things that you've said in the past in having to tell your athletes, Hey, you know, I was actually wrong about a lot of these things and people that I've taught in the past, I was wrong about X, Y, or Z. I definitely have a handful of those things that I'm like, shit, I shouldn't have put that in the course. I have to go back and remove X, Y, or Z. And we could talk about some of those if you want. Um, but I think that's one of them. And two, it's difficult to have to rethink things. I mean, one of the things that I know we've talked about, Drew, is when you start learning a lot of these new concepts, it makes your job harder for a period and it makes you question things. And you're like, man, is what I'm doing even effective? Am I helping people? And eventually you go through this stage where, yes, things become harder. It's like a bell curve but then you push the boulder over the hill and things become exponentially easier again. So I think it's just facing that resistance until things do become simple again and keeping in mind in the interim, while things are confusing and difficult and you have to question yourself that if you were getting people fit before you're already doing a good job, like as long as you're getting people better, great, keep getting people better and maybe don't even change your training protocols while you're still grappling with these new ideas just work on them on your end and try and understand them and think of a new way that you could reformulate your system and then start kind of changing things one by one. It doesn't need to be a fundamental shift in how you structure people's training. It's just a better understanding of when people stop progressing, what you do next. And I think that's the biggest thing. Like Drew always says, like, well, what do we do on Monday? For me, I mean, speaking specifically about that idea of things being, again, I think with, with any paradigm shift, you know, what is it? Science changes one, one funeral at a time. You're all the time, uh, Max Planck. Yeah, exactly. So to your point, yeah. When you, when you do start exposing yourself to some of this stuff, it's a little bit intimidating because you do start to break down, you know, however many years and years that you spend learning things, all of a sudden it's all wrong and that can be intimidating. But I think to, to focus specifically on the tactical space and specifically in our case with the army and seeing the rollout of all of these programs, it's an excellent opportunity in my opinion for coaches to really kind of take a step back and think, okay, you know, if I'm coming from football or if I'm coming from gen pop or if I'm coming from the collegiate space or professional space, like here's an opportunity to really examine what I thought was correct and see if it makes sense working with what is kind of ultimately a new population. Because for me, you know, granted working in the special operations space, it was a lot more intimate, a lot more kind of one-on-one, you know, small group type stuff. But when I started to move away from this idea that training is essentially taking a a ton of different puzzle pieces, depending on, you know, which, which quote unquote puzzle you subscribe to, whether it's 
Bompa or, or this periodization model or that. It's less about I just like the term subscribing to a puzzle. <laughs> never subscribed to a puzzle. Whichever whichever training puzzle you you subscribe to, when you move away from that uh, from that model, and and for me a lot of it was because I got exposed to more of the the physiology of things. You start to recognize that like this sounds bad, but you recognize that a lot of stuff doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if we do front squats or back squats or split squats. It doesn't matter if we do you know, this movement or that movement. And when you move away from that, all of a sudden training, at least this population becomes a whole lot easier because at the end of the day, you're chasing physiology. You're not chasing some arbitrary, you know, seven minute 2k row that you put on the wall or devil body weight deadlift that you put on the wall. And it, it it's intimidating at first, like I said, but it just, it becomes so much easier once you give it enough time. Yeah, I think that like going back to that front squat, back squat example, I think most of the things that people debate on and write content on are things that just don't, don't matter. matter. <laughs> and I know we've talked a lot about in the past is why doesn't all this cutting edge research influence training paradigms? That's why, like, look at DARPA right now. They have their measuring biological aptitude program probably one of the coolest applied physiology programs for human performance that I could possibly dream up, but it's never going to influence what people are doing in tactical S and C because the training paradigm is wrong. You can't take what they're doing in DARPA on uh, IHMC's measuring biological aptitude and layer that onto this worldview where front squats versus back squats is the most important decision <laughs> that you need to make. Like fundamentally, that is the wrong paradigm. If it's not an athlete-centric training paradigm, MBA doesn't jive with it. And I think that's also why integrating a lot of these different uh, sports science technologies where you understand people's limiters and X, Y, or Z, those also do not fit into this program-centric paradigm where we're debating, oh, do I do bat wing rows or seal rows for my lat exercise? And all these different things, you definitely have to be thinking from an adaptation centric perspective. And when you think in that lens, it doesn't really matter what the protocol is. It's, are you getting a stimulus? Yes or no. Because at the end of the day, what we're doing with our training, the only thing that we're trying to do is influence gene expression. If you influence the gene expression, you get the adaptation. Your body doesn't care if it's a front squat or a back squat or a four by four VO two max protocol all those things are going to influence the individual in a different way. And this is, I'm going to just catapult this into some weird area. So, <laughs> well, no, I think, so I'll, I'll bring it back to the tangible piece. Cause we, we were texting about this last week with regards to progressions and like, you know, talk about people arguing about minutia, you know, do I, do I add five pounds next week? Do I do some undulating thing? Blah, 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 blah. And what we we've been kind of going back and forth on for a long time is if it is about gene expression and ultimately at the level of the strength coach and the athlete, it's about adaptation, mm -hmm. getting better. Like we can move away from the science stuff and say, just getting better is the goal. That might mean that you keep weight the same week on week. It might mean that you keep pace the same. It might mean that you make no changes at all. You just make a subtle adjustment with how you interact with the athlete. And so from a strength coach standpoint, if you can wrap your head around the idea that maybe you don't need to tweak programming so frequently, it opens up a ton of time in your day, more or less to 
to make changes that matter, like with your relationship with the athlete, with the athlete's relationship with training, you know, from an army specific standpoint with your relationship with leadership, like it's a lot of the soft intangibles that drive progression. When you move away from this idea that we have to force more weight on the bar or more speed on the clock or what, you know, whatever metric you're using. And the thing that really helped me with that is kind of changing how I think about progression in general. So instead, like we're always taught this, I've heard it a thousand times, the Milo, the bull analogy of like Milo carries the bull up the mountain and the bull gets bigger and he picks it up and he gets stronger. That's actually a very backwards way of thinking about adaptation you don't progressively overload to get stronger. It's not how it works. That doesn't even make sense if you think about it logically. Like I'm gonna lift more than I could lift so I could get stronger. No, that's nonsensical. If you can progressive overload, it means you have already gotten stronger. So progressive overload is not the driver of adaptation. It's the signal that adaptation has already occurred. So just changing how you think about that relationship in general, it actually opens up a lot more options of how you handle training and this is where we could get into more of like a athlete centric way of thinking about things and well i'm gonna i'm gonna just tell everybody listening to pause and hit that little reverse 15 second button and listen to that over and over again until you get it because the milo and the bull thing was like a fundamental shift in how for me personally how i thought of training athletes and to to nail a specific point that alex mentioned from an injury prevention standpoint, that is a massive shift in how you think about training. Because if you try to overload athletes in the traditional sense where you think you have to do more and more and more and more, the inevitable end result to that is injury. Whether it's a running related injury or a lifting related injury, a lot of, I think, strength coaches run into preventable injuries because they have operated under this assumption that they need to force adaptation by overloading the athlete. And the, like I said, you get injured. And if instead you reverse that causality and you say, I can add weight or I can add pace, or I can, you know, make an adjustment because the athlete has adapted, then you stay behind injury because when you run into the limit of the, the athlete's adaptation, the constraints are in place to, to sort of act as a checks and balances equation. I was just gonna say, this is really exciting for me because so first of all, it's become clear once again, that I'm not the guy who knows stuff here. We got, I told you Evan and I are just going to start rambling. No, it's fantastic. (laughs) But, but despite that, what you guys are doing is like a lot of it is surrounding a mops and mows issue, right? It doesn't matter. I don't care what you do in the gym. I care what adaptations, the things you're doing in the gym produce. Like it is of little to no, like, especially in tactical, right? You're not competing for heavier squats or faster miles. You're using those things as tools to make the platform you operate on to do your job more rugged and more capable and faster and stronger and things like that. And, and so we get really wrapped up in the X's and O's of like what happens in the gym when that's not what matters. What matters is the outcome. And you, if, if you could do less in the gym, and get better results, then you would do that because that's the right decision. That's just a hard thing for, that's a shift in your perspective. The way that I always explain this is you just take the next logical step. Like don't take as many steps as you're allowed to take, just take the next logical. And I imagine like a boardwalk where uh, you lay one more plank down and then you take one step forward and you keep doing that. 
If you lay one plank down and you take two steps forward, even if you start 30 feet back, eventually you're not going to lay the planks down fast enough and you're going to walk off the ends. And now what? So what I always tell people is, look, if you have progressively overloaded, it means you have adapted. Whatever you're doing is working. So don't increase your volume. Don't increase your RPE. Just keep doing what you're doing. And once you stop progressing, that's when you make a change. And typically people don't do that. They say, oh, I did three by five at X load this week. I'm going to add another set. No, don't increase sets. You've already adapted. You may be able to do this for six more weeks before you can't adapt anymore. And oftentimes people are too quick to increase RPE week to week or add another set. And then they just end up exhausting a progression within two to three weeks when maybe they could have run the progression for two to three months without hitting a wall if they just added like cut the time down on each 200 meter interval by one second, add one set when you've exhausted your progression and maybe you get better instead of just doing as much as you can each week. And this is something that a lot of CrossFitters, when I first started coaching CrossFitters, they would hate. I lost a ton of clients like five, six years ago because they hated doing the same thing in a row. They started doing CrossFit because they like novelty. And it wasn't until I had the social proof of working with some of these top games competitors that I was able to get average athletes to do these things. What we found is we were able to get people progressing for months on end. People that were already relatively advanced and they're like, oh, I can't do a linear progression or I don't need to do the same workout. I would just have them doing the same workouts over and over and just getting better. And when they would stop getting better, then we tweak things. And it might even be tweaking one thing and you could almost just progress people indefinitely. And what you find, people, some people don't like this. I always joked with my athletes, like no one ever hits a 20 pound back squat PR, but they'll hit 40 half pound PRs, but they'll hit <laughs> 21 pound PRs. Like it's not cool or sexy and you never get that like cool bar slam and you do a backflip after you hit a huge PR, but you do end up making more sustainable progress. And at the end of the day, I mean, that's, really what we're going after anyway i had um this a guy that i'm working with right now remotely this literally like this exact thing literally happened this week where he again has been doing the same progression and this was for his back spot back squat specifically he's doing he's been doing the same prescription for probably two months now in terms of reps and sets and rpe and he started commenting to me that he felt like his back squat was plateauing and it was his trajectory had sort of leveled out a little bit. Literally the only change that I made was I increased the RPE prescription for his last set. So he was doing two eights and a nine. So I changed one number in his prescription and that changed the entire way that he approached that session. And sure enough, he's pushed past that plateau and he's like, it continues to go up, you know, week after week, every other week, whatever it ends up being. But it was a subtle shift. It wasn't some massive change that I pulled from some Russian textbook that had some secret sauce that I added to his training program. And it's just, it's subtle things. I think that once you start training in this framework, you realize that super small adjustments can have massive implications from a biopsychosocial standpoint when we think about training that way. And the reality is, is if you're always changing things, you don't even know what works. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> better, you have no idea why they've gotten better, where if you're only changing one or two things when you really need to, now you could 
fundamentally understand what is actually driving these KPIs. So it's one thing to like track your key performance indicators that you want to get better. It's another thing to actually understand what moves those needles. And I think that's something that's also missing is people just don't know what is actually driving the progress that they're seeing. So then when those numbers stop going up, they just want to change everything in their training program. Or if you could actually identify the key things that move those needles, you could get very precise with training. And it's actually a lot less work on the coaches side mm-hmm. because you don't need to be creative and reinvent the wheel every week. You could just, like you said, just gotta adjust a little dial over here and the needle yeah. moves again. Then you don't need to do anything else. That's it. Can you 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 mentioned it earlier, and I think it's an important thing for for coaches really to wrap their heads around what is athlete centric what does that fundamentally mean yeah so i'll give an example of what is not athlete centric to then kind of create like a little juxtaposition it will be easier to explain what is so what is not athlete centric is drew i am just going to give you this four-week program that i wrote and you are going to do it to the letter every day so Tomorrow, I've got a really hard day for you planned and you come in and you tell me you're feeling like crap. And I'm going to say, Drew, well, guess what? You need to suck it up and do it anyway, because that's what I've got on the schedule. Yeah. <laughs> three days later, you feel great, but I have an active recovery that day. And you're like, man, I really want to push. And I say, too bad. This is your active recovery day. Go sit down. That is not athlete centric. It's forcing someone into a pre-written program where what is athlete centric is you mold the program around the individual. So it could be from a volume and intensity standpoint, hey, I feel great this week. Okay, let's do a little bit more volume or push the intensity. I feel bad. Let's do the opposite. Or it could even be modifying the types of protocols we use. So I know X, Y, or Z things do not work well for Drew. And ABC things do work very well. Well, I'm going to structure his program and put more of the things that I know work well. And the way that I like to kind of get athletes into this because of course when you start coaching someone you're like well I don't know what works well or doesn't work well that's when you kind of use heuristics you're like okay I know these things tend to work pretty good for most people in the population like a nice bell curve distribution most people do pretty good some people do really good some people do really bad let's make most of the protocol that actually when I first start coaching people I pretty much give everyone the same ish program the point of individualizing things and getting fancy when you don't know anything and then we'll start to try some uh, things that are going to have more of like a bimodal distribution so it's like people are either going to do really well or they're not going to do well at all and there's very little middle ground and we'll try some of those things out and if i find you're one of the responders to that those go in the program if you're not those go out the trash so we're we're kind of like learning more about your adaptation process no, I think that that's perfect. And I think the other thing that's, I think, crucial there is the psychological component of the athlete-centric model in the sense that finding not only what works for your athlete on paper, but like what really drives them to even show up in the first place and how you can leverage those things to lead to greater adaptation in the gym. Whether, I mean, this sounds super cheesy, but like I have literally seen this play out where if you have a good understanding of what music an athlete likes, that can be the difference maker between an awesome day in the gym or a really shitty day that needs, you know, requires some recovery. So it's little things like that that drive this kind of athlete centric model as well. 
I'm, I'm feeling lucky that I came to this late enough to be willing to be wrong a bunch of times and learn a bunch of new stuff. Cause only, it was only like three years ago. It's like exactly the same time frame where I was teaching tons of people about phosphogen and anaerobic stuff. But like right around the same time, I discovered 531 and thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Like, especially because I'd taken a little bit of systems engineering and I knew how to like make a calculator in Excel. And like, all of a sudden everything was solved. I can tell everyone if I know their back squat and I know their deadlift and I know their overhead press and whatever, I can plug it into the exact same calculator and create three months of programming right now. And it's incredible and it's awesome. And I was telling everybody about it and it was super cool. <laughs> and just, and like for background, half of, I think like most of the first conversations I had with Drew were Drew explaining to me like all the dumb stuff I was saying that was really outdated. <laughs> and it was fine because I, I'm not a strength coach. My degree is in international relations. I was doing like Intel work for infantry battalions a couple of years ago. And just the willingness to like, relearn some stuff which i think gets harder the longer you've been doing it a certain way i think the the biggest value i've gotten out of like being in the space and talking to all these people is that like some people will send me messages to say hey man like the thing you just posted sounds real smart but it's totally wrong and here's why and i love those conversations and i think this is i'm having a few of these moments in this conversation so hopefully it's valuable for a lot more people than just me so this is this is sort of i think a question for both of you guys because we talk about this, this different way of training, whether you call it athlete centric, you know, it's a paradigm shift from kind of the old way, you know, I think one of the big critiques that I hear about this when I talk to other coaches is, yeah, that's great. If you're, you know, working with one athlete, like in a one-on-one -on -one environment, that's great. I think what we are up against at scale, when we think of tactical human performance in the conventional military is you're talking hundreds, potentially thousands of athletes. And so a question that I always like to ask with these conversations is how do we take the, the best of what works in this model and equip coaches to apply that basically at scale? Like how do you industrialize this model? Because it's, it's not going to be individual physiological testing there's just not the resourcing for that so how do we take like i said how do we take the best of this and make it so that a coach who is training 500 athletes can still move away from what we would consider the wrong approach and towards what we would consider the right approach yeah totally so this is something that i've run into working with like crossfit teams where everyone wants to be doing the same program just for like a camaraderie type of thing um i've also worked with actual sports teams that want to do this type of thing as well and this is where we could have everyone doing the same workout on paper but we could actually individualize the stimulus so the easiest example to give is let's say the three of us are doing 500 meter row repeats and in this hypothetical scenario, I haven't rode a 2K in like five years, so I'm probably horribly slow on it. Um, but let's say all three of us have a seven-minute 2K. That's a 145-500 meter split. And today, the three of us want to row 500 meter repeats at 2K pace is our average pace. So we could all just row 500 meters at a 145 pace. But what if we have different limiters? Oh, man, now we need to get really fancy in how do completely different training, or we could modify the intra interval pacing structure to target different physiological limiters. 
So let's say Drew's doing his power man training. So he's been doing a bunch of power. He's <laughs> limited by his cardiovascular system because he's so strong and jacked that he cuts off his own blood flow to his working muscles. Well, for Drew, I'm going to do our ramping protocol. So Drew is going to do 100 meters at a 155. 150, 145, 140, 135 each interval. He's going to start slow and build in speed across the interval. That averages out to 500 meters at a 145 pace. Let's say Alex, he's been crushing endurance training. He's limited by his respiratory system. So what Alex is going to do is, let me quickly mental math this. He's going to do 125 meters at 140, 144. No, this math isn't going to work out. <laughs> it's going to get progressively second. faster every 125 oh, meters. <laughs> well, okay. Whatever math this works out to, you're going to do 125 meters four times. You're going to start very fast and you're going to get slower across the interval. It's basically the opposite pacing structure that Drew just did, but still averaging out to 145. And I'm just horribly deconditioned. So I'm just going to row straight 500 meter repeats at a 145 pace. All three of us, we just finished that interval in the exact same amount of time. We just rode the same workout on paper, completely different physiologic adaptations. So Drew's doing this ramping structure. What he's allowing himself to do is overcome cardiac lag because he's cardiovascular limited. So he's going to start slow and he's going to build in pace. So when he's deoxygenating his muscles, he's able to get a compensatory increase in blood flow and he's going to be increasing his stroke volume and all of these great things that are going to get them the adaptations that he wants. Alex, on the other hand, doesn't need that. So Alex is starting very fast and he's deoxygenating his muscles very rapidly. So he could reach a high percentage of his VO2 peak. That's one of the most important things for training his respiratory system. But if you deoxygenate the muscles to a really great extent, you're just not going to be able to sustain the pace. So by gradually slowing down, he's keeping his muscles in a hypoxic state and maintaining that high percentage of his VO2 peak, but extending the duration out. Now he's gotten respiratory training in me. I'm just deconditioned. So I'm kind of doing a nice bang for your buck, like moderate level of peripheral desaturation, moderate respiratory stress, probably improving oxygen utilization to a degree. So all three of us just did the same workout, but we're getting different adaptations. Let's say we want to back squat before that. Well, I'm someone that responds really well to volume. So I'm going to auto-regulate my intraset volume. So I'm, I pretty much just take everything to like AMRAP minus one or AMRAP minus two sets. I just rep things out till I'm pretty close to failure. And I tend to get stronger from doing that. A lot of people that are a little bit more explosive or powerful, that may not work well for them. So Drew may do fixed reps and sets, but he may auto-regulate his load. Alex may auto-regulate his set volume. So we could do very similar training themes, but we just pick the thing that we want to individualize and we could have everyone's workouts follow the same structure, take roughly the same amount of time, but there's enough individualization that we're all getting what we need. So I would try and cater things that way. So if, if we operate off of the assumption and the military says this all the time, like people first, okay, cool. So if we kind of take what Evan just mentioned from a training standpoint, and create a conversation at like the entry level into the military, there's almost a, a, a point to be made of like, maybe you should invest time and resources into educating each one of those, we'll call them tactical athletes on themselves so that when they move through their career, 
they understand, hey, and I don't think it's as, as dichotomous as saying you're respiratory limited, your utilization limited, go forth and train. But I think you could do a decent job at that level of educating these guys on what they adapt well to, what they don't adapt well to, so that when they arrive at their unit, their company, what have you, they have enough of those tools so that it saves the strength coach or the or the provider from doing a lot of this deep physiological analysis to arrive at essentially what Evan was talking about, which is here's the prescription. You as the athlete should have a good understanding of how you will approach that. And that really makes the whole thing athlete centric. And I realize that that's a mythical fantasy land, but it's a kind of cool concept to think about. Well, that comes back to exactly what I was going to say, which is it's, it's aspirational individualization, right? The programs are not going to be individualized. Each soldier is not going to get an entirely separate program where they go do a different thing. You're still going to get programming. That's like squad based or platoon based or company based or whatever it is, but you're going to equip the individuals and you're going to equip the small unit leaders with the knowledge to recognize that each member of that unit might have slightly different needs today might be a good day for one of them because they like had a couple of good meals and got a good night's sleep and all that stuff. And the other one might have a newborn at home and didn't get a lot of sleep. And it is okay that they adjust the workout to those things morning up. That is okay. I know that's like culturally anathema to the whole idea of like how the military trains, but just opening up the aperture a little bit on like allowing individuals to adjust it to their individual situation and their individual needs given the education to do so optimally. Well, I think it takes away because what I hear all the time is if, if soldier X can't do the session that was written for the day, it's, it's soldier X's fault. But I mean, let's consider the possibility that maybe the session, I mean, we've talked a lot about the physiology of all this type of stuff. What if, you know, you're, you're going out and doing some big formation run and that's just not, what's going to push the needle for that individual soldier. And we, we might look at tweaking their set. Like, I think to your point, Alex, it's not, I have, I have seen the, the situation at present, which is that any adjustment to the workout is a poor reflection on the individual. Whereas what I think we're proposing is in fact, the opposite, which is that we should encourage adjustments in the workout. So long as the end state is the same across the board, which would be increased performance. Yeah, that's one of those things that if you if you actually want to have KPIs that really transfer over to task specificity, which that's like a pipe dream and tactical <laughs> strength and conditioning, like I don't know what in the gym tests are going to transfer over to job competency. Good luck with whoever needs to figure that leg out. Talks. Alex is going to tell you it's leg talks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't imagine it would be anything else. Uh, so that that seems really that seems on point but i mean regardless like let's say there's something that at least correlates with like on the job performance i can imagine like you probably need to be able to pick up something heavy back to that story that you guys told on the last episode where someone couldn't drag someone off a battlefield you probably need to have some capacity so i mean if we have kpis that are useful they don't need to be perfect kind of the aspirational kpis let's call them isn't it more important that those things get better than that people are sticking to the program perfectly. It's one of those things that it's kind of ironic. Like I work with some pro sport teams as well, and they say that they want to improve performance. And that's the thing that they care about the most. And oftentimes what you find when you really consult with different people in the organization and you dig into it, 
is that they don't actually want to improve performance and win games more than anything else. What they really want to do is just stick to the status quo because one coach wants to stroke their own ego and they don't want to be wrong and change things. And another coach has this agenda and nothing ends up changing. So I think that's part of it as well as identifying is the goal really to make people's performance better. And if it is, and we do find that taking a more athlete centric approach moves that needle more over time, you could actually look at the data, make this very objective in the culture does not allow for that, then I think we just need to be realistic and say, okay, the goal is not to make people as fit as possible. It's to reinforce this certain cultural norm. And that's not good or bad. There's no moral judgment to that, but I think it's worth at least being honest and understanding what is the master that we're trying to serve here? Is it culture or is it human performance or is it a little bit of both? And if you can be honest about that, then you can actually figure out what approach really does make the most sense. If it is culture, then yeah, have at it, take the program centric approach, but don't say that it's a human performance organization. And that's the thing that matters most if it's truly not. I think the goal has to be somewhere in between, right? Because there's a ton of culture and tradition tied yeah, up in how all of these programs do everything and you're not going to get rid of it and you shouldn't get rid of it because it's no, valuable. No. But I think finding, finding that, the art of this is finding that balance, right? Mm-hmm. And then I don't, I don't want to guide this towards a conclusion because we are over an hour of content. I want to guide it towards the conclusion because my bingo card is full. We hit all of the key terms we needed to hit in terms of paradigms, in terms of path dependence, in terms of anaerobic. We, we hit all of the buzzwords. So we, John, we got John Kiley. <laughs> we talked about John Kiley. <laughs> I'll close. So Evan, we'll, I'll close with this question because this is one I'm, I'm curious about from you specifically. What is, what is one thing with all of this that you have changed your mind on in the last, we'll call it two years, three years? Oh God. I feel like there's a lot of things that I've <laughs> mind on. Um, how to pick one. Ooh. What's one thing, because you, I mean, you have a lot of content out there. Do you look, I mean, surely you do, but is there, is there one thing in particular where you look back and you're like, oh my God, I should not have done that. Or you just so didn't know. It's more slow evolutions over time. So anyone that's followed me for years, what they may have realized is I actually write content on about an eight to 10 month cycle or every eight to 10 months, you'll actually see a post that I put up eight to 10 months ago, but it's rewritten with my new understanding of those topics. So I've actually just been writing the same content over and over for about five or six years. And I just keep updating it a bit with my new ways of thinking about things. And it's not always huge changes in how I'm thinking about things, but I mean, you learn a lot in eight to 10 months. So you rephrase some things, you add caveats and disclaimers where you may not have before, or maybe you change your views on some things entirely. And it's just a very natural evolution. So it's hard to say something that outright, I'm like, this is completely wrong. It's more often, hey, I've changed my opinion slightly on this thing five times. So if you look at the whole arc from start to finish, it's a quite different opinion, but you can't really pinpoint any small or uh, any individual change there. Holy shit. That's the best full circle answer because it directs relately to it relates directly to what we're talking about with programming. It's not massive changes. It's small iterations over time as you slowly find out what works better. That was beautiful. <laughs> Just started up a bit.
I know, right? How perfect. All right. Well, thank you. I know we, we talked for a long time, but thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. That's a lot of fun.